This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have an amazing show for all of you today because rarely, if ever, do we actually kind of sit on our own laurels and talk about some of the things that mean very special things to us. But when I started the show, I had a very specific host and partner that I wanted to have work with me on this show because of his granular and vast knowledge of Star Trek lore. And that person is Mr. Ataz. The reason why we call him Mr. Ataz is because in that classic episode, All of Our Yesterdays, we have the librarian of A to Z. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. So before I introduce Mr. Ataz, I'd like to say hello to the chief. Chief, how are you? I'm doing well. Looking forward to the show. I, I do realize that Mr. Atos will forget more than I will ever know about Star Trek, so I'm ready to test that knowledge. And we're going to put his feet to the fire here because a lot of what we're going to do in this episode has to do with a very specific thing that Mr. Atos created over the course of several years, if not a lifetime to some fans. And we're going to let him pretty much run the gamut of the show and let you all know about a very special project that is near and dear to his heart called Trekopedia. So without further ado, Mr. Ataz, Jeffrey Harlan, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, like you said, I've been working on this a long time, off and on since the late 90s, really, um, in one form or another. One of the things that inspired us to do this is during your sign-off on the show, you actually advertise this as part of a way that you can connect with fans. And then you say that Trekopedia.com has been called a grand unified theory of Star Trek. And we wanted to let you spotlight that on this episode while we give listeners a chance to understand how they, coming in as possibly new fans to the series, the TV series, the animated series, the movies, everything that has to do with the original series, and find that resource for them where they can go and kind of make sense of some of the grand inconsistencies that also happen in the original series. So let's start out with just kind of like a general knowledge of what Trekopedia is. What inspired you to create Trekopedia? Because it is a lifelong work and a labor of love, which many fans do, but not necessarily to the degree that you've done it. So let's start there. What inspired you to do this? Well, it started back in the 90s when I was writing fan fiction. Um, I 
was creating an entirely new timeline for all of my fanfiction stories. Um, I'd gone back and I was retconning everything left and right. Um, I had like a consistent time uh, start date system in place from the founding of the Federation up through. So by the time of Voyager, it was like six digit long, uh, seven digit long start dates. And uh, I, I needed something to keep all this straight and memory alpha didn't exist yet. So I started creating my own encyclopedia because the official encyclopedia that was out at the time only covered what was on the TV shows and the movies. And as good as it was, that was a limitation to me because I wanted to incorporate the books and the movies into the history of this new timeline that I was creating for my fan fiction. And so I started my own resource where I was taking the basics from the encyclopedia and then taking the information from the books and the comics and the games and merging it all together into one unified resource. I mean, later we would have something similar with memory alpha, memory beta. Um, but even those don't go to the same degree that um, memory uh, or that, uh, that Trekopedia is going to, because Trekopedia, unlike those two, is taking all of those sources merging them together, and where there's a conflict, I try to find a way to make them all work together, and then I'll have a note section at the bottom saying, you know, this is what I changed, and this is why. Now, this is during what year, did you say, Jeff? Um, probably about 98, 99. Okay, so this was kind of, um, at the time, the internet isn't as robust as the internet is today, especially when it comes to finding or Google-fooing Star Trek information, mm-hmm. so... Is this something that you felt was completely just out of the norm when it comes to what Star Trek fans were able to put their hands on in terms of resources at the time? And do you remember exactly when you said, you know what, I'm so frustrated with what I can't find that I personally am so moved to do this? I mean, what do you remember in your fan fiction was that point? Were you like writing something and just like, you know what, uh, I need to look uh, up for something, but there's nothing that I can find. I need to make sense of this. Yeah. I was actually working on, uh, an idea I had for a series that took place in between, um, the first scene of generations, um, and the next generation. It's, it was a, uh, um, series set on an old constitution class ship that was about to be decommissioned. It was on its final five-year mission in the year 2300. I mean, uh, 2200 rather. And, and I, I was, I was actually having them come into conflict with, um, the Gorn and, uh, the Kazin and all these other things. I was throwing in stuff from the animated series. I was throwing in stuff from the books and the comics. And, uh, I just needed something to keep all the information together because there were so many things that I was referencing and there was no other way to do it than to make up a resource of my own. So Ken, do you do you remember when you know you started getting into your fandom? Did you ever felt frustrated that you couldn't go to a resource like this and find and try and make any sense of the information that sometimes that you felt felt inconsistent when you were watching, say, the original series versus the movies versus the animated series? Was there a point in time where you're like, gosh, I really wish there was something that I could find either in print or online or somewhere in like the forums at the time that would help you make sense of it. And that just didn't happen for you. 
Yeah, that that happened a lot when I was in my early fandom, especially. And as the movies really started to to come around, it was wildly inconsistent. And you try to put together bits and pieces. And I think as as we'll dive into this, and I'm sure that, that Jeff will be able to illustrate, it is really tricky because it seemed to me that the writers were just writing a story and they were leaving it up to everybody else to try to put it back together. There wasn't something that they were trying to follow because we know that the original series was episodic. It wasn't necessarily linear. It, it, it we, we know that there were productions of shows that were done earlier and broadcasted later than others and, and, and vice versa. And then when you get to the movies, for me anyway, you know, some of the uh, transitions between one movie to the next and how much time had gone past and why it was getting picked up or why certain events that had happened were were left wide open. And so I, I would get frustrated. The I think there was a lot more effort in TNG as it got going, and uh, it seemed to make a lot more sense. And then, of course, the other shows that followed all worked off it pretty well. But uh, that's where it really got frustrating for me, really was in the timelines from the series to the movies throughout the movies and uh, and where it wound up. And, you know, we actually had this a little bit of a sidebar conversation when we were doing the motion picture versus the Wrath of Khan and trying to figure out what happened in that 15-year timeline where, well, we thought it was a 15-year timeline. And that kind of like spurred this whole, was it 15 years of this or was it 15 years of the SETI Alpha 5 orbital system? So these are the things that you kind of like just scratch your head and like, wow, I'd really like to make sense of this. So in terms of the in- entire canonical tapestry. Nice word. I totally forced that in there because I wanted to say canonical tapestry <laughs> for Ken's benefit, because we always want to get canonical in an episode. But in, in that overall kind of we need to make sense of this. It's great that there's a resource out there like Trekopedia.com for you to go to. So, Jeff, I want to take a new listener through the process of trying to navigate your site. Now, we're not going to be on the site right now, and it may not make 100% sense, but when they go to your site, what is the first thing that you feel makes most sense for them to go to in terms of the navigation? Where do you want them to go? Well, the first, uh, the main page, I've just got like a list of different tabs, and each one of those tabs, like the first one is has like an introduction page where I talk about, you know, my what caused me to start up this site? Why am I doing this all by myself instead of opening it up like a wiki, like uh, memory alpha or memory beta and uh, you know, all the different things behind it. You know, I, I even make a little joke in there about how, you know, somebody who's doing this on their own must be just completely nuts. And yes, I am uh, because this is an insane amount of work and I'm just doing this in my spare time whenever I can find it. Um, but uh I also talk about, uh, you know, there's a process that I have for when I make an entry because sometimes there are conflicts, you know, sometimes in between episodes of the show, there are conflicts like the original series. You have at least three diff- radically different uh, uh, timelines for when the show is set. You know, one episode, they're implying that it's in the 27th century, one they're in the 22nd, one they're in the 23rd. I mean, it's just not really pinned down at all until much later in this in the uh, the run of the franchise. And trying to make sense of all that was uh, uh, also a challenge. And sometimes, unfortunately, you just have to kind of ignore some things like, uh, you know, uh, a comment that, uh, you know, they're 900 light years away and they're seeing like the light that is coming from earth through a telescope and it's showing the Napoleonic era, which would mean that, you know, that's 
took 900 years for the light to reach there. And it's the 18th century, you know, you're looking at 27th century, you know, you, you kind of have to ignore that in light of the weight of the evidence from all the other shows. Um, sometimes it's, you have to come up with an exclamation like, well, maybe this person just misspoke or they misremembered the facts when they said something. And one of the things that actually bothered all, all of us, I think at one point in time is that we were, we were having a discussion and we were talking about the inconsistencies of writing teams from the original series, from season to season to season, and even in the movies. And doesn't it kind of strike you as odd that there wasn't some type of canonical Bible for all of these writers to work from? And since there wasn't one, which is obvious, adds to these giant inconsistencies that are in the canon. And it's weird because, like, you know, as fans, we love kind of, like, picking those threads but at the same time, though, we still need to make sense that this is an actual real universe and the illusion is not broken based on the inconsistencies of this canon. So I'd like to jump into a couple of these. Ken, you had some really good points that you wanted to bring up uh, with Mr. Atos here. So let's jump into your first question. OK, so there's many parts to this, Jeff, so I'll walk through it. But it's it's pretty simple. So as we were saying before, if if I could and probably a lot of our fans, could understand the timelines from the end of the five-year mission, the original five-year mission to the motion picture, then to the Wrath of Khan. And then was it decided and documented that there would be such a substantial amount of time between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan? Was there a reason that Kirk's temporary reduction to captain to command the Enterprise was made permanent and then got promoted again? And I guess bottom line is, is the timeline considered canon or is it speculation from the Akuta team? So real simple question for you, Jeff. Go for it. All right. Well, um, a lot of this, uh, you know, like I said, uh, it was kind of in flux at this point. They really didn't have a whole lot of nailed down. It was uh, it was really motion picture and Star Trek II that really nailed it down into being in the 23rd century motion picture they said that you know it was 300 years since the voyager probes were launched which was in 1977 and that so that put the series somewhere around 2270s 2280s um and the um star trek 2 opens up it says in the 23rd century so we know it's sometime in the 23rd century just don't know exactly when but then we also know that the romulan ale that mccoy gave to kirk for his birthday McCoy's, uh, or rather Kirk read it and he said it was 2283 vintage. And McCoy says it takes a while for this stuff for, to ferment. So we know it's sometime after 2283. The Okudas threw it down as 2285 and no one's really argued that. That kind of makes sense while everything else is set. So I mean, we're, we're saying 2285 for that. And we know that the original five-year mission was... Uh, again, from the Akutas, they said it was 300 years after it aired, which is oddly random. That's one of their basic assumptions. And it's also one of the problems that I had with their chronology was because they had three pages of basic assumptions. Um, so that one went into the Voyager episode Q2, which says 2265 to 2270 was the five-year mission. Uh, so 2270, and it took two and a half years since Kirk had been in space, according to Decker in the motion picture. So we're looking at about two and a half, three years for the refit of the Enterprise. So that's about 2273 for the motion picture. So we got 2273 
for when the motion picture takes place, and then we jump ahead to 2285 for Star Trek II. So we got about a 12-year gap in between the two of them. Uh, the Akuta's chronology said that there was a second five-year mission. There's a lot of books and comics and stuff that say that there was a second five-year mission, and they followed those stories for a while. And then Generations says that Kirk had retired at some point. And it says that he was on his father or his uncle's ranch in Idaho 11 years ago, which puts that because uh, Generations was right after Star Trek VI, which has been put at uh, 2280 or excuse me, 2293. So 11 years before that was 2282 when he met with Antonia during that uh, retirement. And that's about three years before the Wrath of Khan. And then it jumps to two years later when he goes back to Starfleet, which is 2284, the year before that. Okay, so let's kind of unpack that a little bit for the listeners and let's rewind it a little bit and let's kind of like take that as a couple of smaller detailed chunks. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that you were talking about, Jeff, is you were talking about the Akuta's chronology. Mm-hmm. Exactly what are you referencing? Uh, they wrote a book called The Star Trek Chronology. It was about the second or third attempt at making a chronology for the Star Trek universe. But the others were completely different from this one. Um, A lot of the dates that they went off of uh, just did not line up with anything else, uh, especially not with the Akuta chronology. And as time has gone on since that book was released, the writers of the series have used that as their primary reference for uh, for the chronology for the shows. And so everything has been more and more consistently lining up with the chronology that the Akutas wrote. Um, before that, it was still pretty much up in the air. could have gone either way. Um, but the Akuta chronology, they made a lot of assumptions, like I said, about when things were set. And some of them worked. Some of them, I think, could have worked better in different places. But for the most part, it was pretty well-researched and pretty well done. Okay, so I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you because we actually didn't do this in the notes. But how does the FASA modules for the original model game work in this history because there's a lot of history that was invented for there like the four years war that was the basis for the Axanar fan film does that fall in line with canon does that fall in line with any type of chronological sense that can be overlaid on top of the original series timeline or is that just one of those floating canonical spheres that just writers created because they needed to create a a game module well, the FASA games originally were based off of the uh, um, the spaceflight chronology, which was actually written in part. Uh, it was co-written by Rick uh, Rick Sternbach, uh, who was also uh, worked on Star Trek at the time, and that came out many years before the Akutas did their chronology, and it took a completely different approach to when things happened. Um, the original series was set more towards the early 23rd century as opposed to the mid to late 23rd century like the uh, the later chronologies would be. Um, and those lined up better with the comments in Space Seed because Space Seed, they said it had been 20, uh, 200 years since uh, 1996, which would put it somewhere around 2200. They said about 2212, 2220 for the original series. Uh, so that worked a little better with that reference. Um the motion picture worked better with the Okuda's chronology and the two didn't really line up too uh, very well, but 
it's possible with a lot of involved uh, mathematics to uh, convert the spaceflight chronology years into something that lines up better with the Akuta chronology. And you can make it work like 90% of the time. So do you think that Akuta's when and we're talking about Mike and Denise Akuta and they obviously came to uh more prominent in the uh in the next generation and, and, and obviously in every series uh, sequentially after that. But do you think that they struggled with the exact same thing that you struggled with? All of a sudden they were like, well, we need to actually create some type of script consistency here because all of a sudden you have this technology, you have this reference, you have this timeline. And in doing so, because they were so well-respected and still are, I mean, that became the retcon of retcons in a way. Yeah, they. Uh, I'm sure that they had a lot of the same problems that I've been struggling with. I mean, sometimes you look at something and it says, you know, it, it's the the reference given, like like I was saying with the Squire of Gothos, where they're 900 light years away and they're seeing light from the 18th century. It's just there's really no way to account for that in the chronology, and just kind of have to make a decision: Do I ignore this? Do I just say something else? And they went with. Uh, with the assumption that we're just going to say it's 300 years later exactly. And they ignored the on-screen reference that it was 900 or, you know, it was 700 years later. And that lined up better with the motion picture and with Star Trek two, because those uh, are set more closely to it being 300 years later, as opposed to like 200, 250. Okay. So can let's get back to some of these finer points that you were talking about. You had, this is, you know, you had the, a multi-part question here. So let's get into that second phase of, of that question that you have for Mr. Atos regarding the inconsistencies of the timelines. Yeah. So I guess when we were talking more or less about the, um, the movie era, right? That's, that's <laughs> my favorite era. And this is where I always got flustered. So do you think one that when Star Trek, the wrath of Khan was made, that there was a built-in timeline or did they just make a movie and people tried to, to tried to back through that. And then again, between five and six, it's another big gap, apparently, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, same thing. Do you think they just were trying to write another story? Or even in Star Trek Three, where they mentioned the ship is 20 years old, and we know the ship is a lot older than that, unless you're counting refit time. So those are the, those are the timelines for me that I always focus in on and try to make heads or tails of, because if it's... Um, if it's just a re-imaging, if, if the uniforms are different or the bridge looks different and it's because somebody had a different vision, that's one thing. Or is it actually different because there's been a passage of time, things have evolved, and things have changed? I think it's a little bit of both because um, one of the big things in Star Trek II was they were talking about the crew is aging. And it makes sense if they're doing that, that a lot of time has passed because with the motion picture, there really hadn't been a whole lot of time, just a couple of years. Um, but with, if you jump ahead by more than a decade, uh, then there's quite a bit of time that has passed. These people are getting older and they're starting to look at the very real probability that they're going to have to step aside and let younger blood come in and take over. And right. I think that fit in very well with the, the theme of the movie and also with setting it so many years later and the movie very explicitly said that it was many years later it opens up uh, um, 
we if you do the math from having it set in 2285 it's Kirk's 52nd birthday um and if uh you also factor in uh we get that number because the bottle of Romulan ale was 2283 so 2 years later um we know that uh the uh motion picture was about 12 years before that because the the date that they gave in the movie, you know, it's two and a half years since the original, uh, five year mission. What date are you talking about? Um, when they, Started? when they said that it had been two and a half years since the original, uh, since the end of the five year mission, it had been two and a half years since Kirk had last logged any star hours. Okay. Um, and that, I, that I get, but from yeah. the, from in the wrath of Khan, other than the Romulan ale, there was really no distinct, Number and I remember them saying that Kirk was forty nine going on fifty, but now it's fifty two. Well, it's uh, I don't remember them saying the exact age in the, in the movie. No, um, they didn't say it in the movie. I think mm-hmm. I read it. Um, as yeah, because uh, if about it. if you set the movie in twenty two eighty five, we've already established that he's been or he's been uh, born in twenty two thirty three. That was reinforced uh, uh in the most recent film uh right. or uh, with the, the 2009 film uh he was born in 2233 and that was the same in both timelines that was the split in the timeline so it's the same in the prime timeline as well so 2285 he would be 52 okay well that makes sense because from the from the motion picture which is funny because they made that movie uh, eight, nine years after they canceled the show, mm-hmm. it, it premiered 10 years, but they all look pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all in shape and, you know, the the difference in Star Trek 2 was, it was quite noticeable, uh, especially Scotty, uh, God love him, really aged a lot. Yeah. And then uh, from that point, it was consistent for the next three movies. And I know we talked about the Enterprise being 20 years old. I guess that kind of fits from the yeah. refit date or close to the refit date. That That's kind of close to the refit age. I think that's just uh, an oversight by the writers because at that point it had been about 20 years since the show had been on. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, he Admiral Morrow said that the Enterprise was 20 years old. And even at the time that the movie came out, people were saying that that's kind of ridiculous because we know there was about 12 years between the the – um, Star Trek two and three and Star Trek motion picture it's three years for the refit five years for Kirk's five-year mission Pike was in command for about 15 uh, which we know from the menagerie uh, Captain April commanded for at least five years before Pike from the animated series episode the counter clock incident so this gives us a minimum of 40 years and I think I remember reading somewhere that was originally in the script it said 40 but then somebody changed it because that seemed too long oh. but 40 years between before 2285 is 2245 and that is actually the date that was given in the Enterprise Mirror Universe episode uh, through Mirror Darkly part 2 because they pulled up Archer's bio and that's read by Hoshi yeah, you're right and, and, and uh, that, that was entirely scripted in there you're yeah, right and yep. and you can freeze frame it on the blu-ray and you can read it and it says that uh, Archer um died the day after the Enterprise was launched in 2245 you know, that's an interesting thing, though, because because uh, Enterprise was shot in high definition and you actually had the opportunity to freeze frame and see those statistics. Mm-hmm. When do you think the writers were actually paying attention and saying, you know what, we really need to kind of roll back all of our information and make sure that these things are statistically correct? Because now 
fans can go in there and actually dive deep and find those true either facts or inconsistencies and then kind of make a point about it, which is what kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. So well, I know for that episode that- in particular, the writer was very aware of that. It was Mike Sussman and he actually mm-hmm. took the text of what he wrote for those screens and posted it online for all the fans to read. Yeah. Well, Mike is a, I mean, he's a huge you know, original series fan and I know he didn't want to make sure that he didn't like stumble and fumble that ball because mm-hmm. That's how fans kind of uh, have evolved into being, I guess, with this new internet age, to be able to dissect that information. So before we go on to the next point, I just wanted to kind of simulate how a fan would be able to go through the process of finding the information from Ken's question about that 15-year span uh, where we think that you know Kirk is going through certain changes in his life and coming back into the forefront as a commander. So if I had that question, like what happened in those 15 years? You know, I'd really like to know what happened with Kirk. How does a, f- a fan go to trekopedia.com and filter through that information to find that information they're looking for specifically? Well, a lot of that gets written into the bios that I write for each character. Um, I try to get as much information from all the different sources and write a very detailed biography that that details all these different things about the different characters. So like for Kirk's biography, I would talk about, you know, from this period to this period, this happened and this happened. And um, I would then have like footnotes referencing where that information came from. And they would, if they found something that sounded interesting, like, oh, he did this or, you know, this event happened and I want to find out more of that, they can click the link and find out where that story was and either watch the show, read the book, read the comic or whatever. So the inconsistencies just don't happen in the live action series. You have actually a couple of instances here where it's actually crept into the animated series. And I'm pretty sure that when Aaron hears this, his ears are going to perk up. But no series is perfect. Mm-hmm. And like we said before, the uh, the canon hasn't been established in any type of series Bible. So you found a couple here that actually struck you as being somewhat interesting to be able to talk about on a podcast because they were that far off the mark. Yeah. Um, in the original series, we have one of the very first episodes ever aired was the man trap and Uhura is basically flirting with Spock, which ties into uh, a 2009 film, uh, by the way. Um, Uhura is flirting pretty heavily with Spock and she basically says something along the effects of, you know, what does a night look with the moon is full on Vulcan and Spock says Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. And in yesteryear, a few years later, we have... And then she goes, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's like, I'm not surprised. Um, but uh, in yesteryear, a few years later, uh, we have a very nice, beautiful shot of the city of Shikar, where Spock is from. And there is this giant planet-looking thing and a moon in the sky. And I understand that uh, DC Fontana was very upset by this because it... You know, contradicted uh, man trap, but uh, it got through, it made it into the show, and then it was doubled down in the motion picture with the establishing shot of Vulcan, and you see it yet again. And uh, this was in some of the novels, they actually kind of retconned this. They said that giant planet looking thing was actually another planet in the Vulcan system, which shares its orbit with, with Vulcan, and that moon was its moon. So Sometimes the two planets are close enough. You can see them in the sky. Sometimes they're not. 
So when does retconning something like that become more of a kind of like a soft apology to try and make sure that everything works together? Because you're right. It's knowing that it was said in the man trap and, and obviously Dorothy Fontana was so far into the trenches of the series and the animated series to have that knowledge where it would be a note. I'm just trying to speculate what would happen in the animation studio at the time. We're like, well, we're just going to throw that in there. But clearly she would have made some type of protest to it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, do inconsistencies happen because they're there or just because people don't care or probably the measure of both? I think it's partly that they need something that looks good on the screen and they try to accommodate what's been done before, but sometimes based on time constraints or anything else that goes on in the production of a show, something slips by and, you know, you get inconsistencies creep in all the time. Um, But now that we've been, uh, got this established as having a sister planet with its moon, you know, that actually kind of helped with the Star Trek 2009 film because now this previously unnamed moon is in just the right spot. So maybe that's where Kirk, Scotty, Spock, and Keenzer were at, where Spock could see Vulcan in the sky unaided. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, I was thinking the exact same thing. And let's go like, okay, we're going to go a little bit off script here because there are some great notes here that I want to get to. But because... We are coming up on Beyond, and that's happening on what July 22nd, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. We have Star Trek 09 and Star Trek Into Darkness, and there has been some serious controversy in terms of some of the consistency and inconsistency that happened with the past when you know before Nero happened and we had the Kelvin. Do you think that the writers were paying more particular attention at this time to make sure that these inconsistencies don't happen, or... Is it just one of those situations where, you know, they had the writing team of Orsi, uh, Kurtzman and, you know, J.J. Abrams to some extent just trying to create a story that's a great story and the inconsistencies will fall where they may? I think it's more of that than, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to make a good story. They're also trying not to step on toes too much, but at the same time, they're of the opinion that story is more important. You know, if we have a good story, you know, the people that are out there, like myself, will find a way to make it work. Now, I see here, Ken, that you had notes here with about what happened to, or is this Jeff's note? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to Kirk's other nephews? Yeah, that's one of my notes. That's an, inter- yeah. that's an interesting inconsistency. Yeah, that one I always wondered about. Um, because in uh, in the episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of?, where Kirk got uh, uh, an android duplicate of himself, we learned that he had a brother, George who he was the only one that called him Sam. Um, and this is presumably because their father was also George, which we later found out was true. And we also found out that Sam had three sons, but then in operation annihilate, we finally see Sam, but Sam is a corpse that's played by Shatner with a fake mustache. And in, we also meet Sam Kirk's wife and their son, Peter, but we never see their other two sons. We never see what happened to them. They're never even mentioned. So clearly nobody's concerned about their safety. <laughs> um, so was it, it uncle, wasn't interesting. You know what, there the was Uncle Cybok. Yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> off with Cybok. But uh, uh, I think it was the comic books. There was a story that later established that the older two brothers, 
uh, were off world visiting, uh, family. I think it was like they were visiting their grandmother on earth or something when the colony was attacked. But it took the comic book to explain that it wasn't addressed at all in the episode. I think it's when they wrote the episode, they just flat out forgot that they said that he had three sons. Now, I know that you are a huge fan of the novels. I remember when we first actually met Jeff and then you and I kind of like expressed our our similar, you know, uh, love of Star Trek. I think I've, I may have been wearing a Star Trek shirt or you may have been wearing a Star Trek shirt or, or, both. or Darren, our mutual friend. You know, he says that we both love Star Trek. You emailed me a picture of your library of books, mm-hmm. which was staggering to me because I've never seen that many Star Trek books before in my entire life. But with all of those books, do you feel that those books were more consistent in terms of the canon of Star Trek? Or did you find that the books actually added more to the inconsistencies between the narrative timeline of these books versus the timeline of the series? I think it's 90% consistent uh, among the books in the series. Um, Partly because whatever happened in the books... For most of the 90s, they had to have a reset button by the end of the book, and everything had to be back to where they left it so that it wouldn't interfere with the show. Um, There was only a couple of books where they kind of ignored that. Um, One of the most blatant examples I remember was uh, um, the book ends with Dr. Salar leaving the Enterprise and uh, quitting Starfleet so that she can raise an orphan Andorian child that they found. (laughs) And, you know, then, like, they mention her name in a later episode over the intercom and uh, she's one of the major characters in the new frontier novels. So that book clearly is like completely off in terms of uh, um, being able to fit in with everything else. So that one, I kind of shuffled off to an alternate timeline, but um, for the most part, all the other books are pretty consistent Uh, there. It's actually very surprising. Um, I know that there was very uh, strict regulation from Paramount on uh, what they could and couldn't do in the books, and I think that played a large part of uh, keeping them consistent. You know, for uh, for a lot of us, and I'm speaking for myself, and I think I can speak for a lot of people who are at my certain fandom level. I'm going to have to like you know uh, put this as a gauge of like fandom levels, like A through A B C D E. Let's let's put five different levels. I'm probably around level. C. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a decent fan. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an average fan, probably above average fan. When I watch a movie, sometimes those don't really stick out to me, those inconsistencies. Ken, when you watch a movie, and I know because you love the movies and that's why I'm making this reference, mm-hmm. has there really ever been a time where just like that makes no sense to me at all? And and what do I do about it? Where do I go about, where do I go to find that or express my concern with why that got through? Sure. Well, when the movies came out, I was a lot younger, and I was deep in deep into my fandom then. I was the Mr. Ataz of the 80s, okay? And I could tell you anything that was going on in every episode, repeat the lines. Now, as time has gone on, that's changed. So I would get very frustrated and to the point where it could take the fun out of it. And that's why I kind of had to change my attitude a bit as I got older. But it was like that all the time. And and. You know, Generations was a very frustrating movie because of the timelines and Antonia and all this stuff. None of it made any sense. And it it just was like, what? You know, those those things could uh, creep up on me and it would pull me out of the story. Same thing, like we said before, about the Enterprise being 20 years old or how much time went between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. Back then, none of that was established. It just happened. It was just another movie. And years later, you can kind of piece it together. So 
for me, it it had an impact. Now, as time gone on, I have a very different view of things, and it doesn't have that kind of impact. For me now, it's more of a curiosity and how do things play. So as they do the brand new movies, I see they they had Kirk's birth spot on. Uh, those those types of things were spot on. But as far as historical, uh, if if they're all going through the academy, they're all the same different ages and the crew all comes together at different ranks. So there was just a lot of things that was inconsistent there in order to tell the story. But that didn't bother me so much now. It's like, okay, they're all back together. Doesn't make a lot of sense how this would work and that's not how it would work. Nobody comes out of the academy above the rank of ensign. I don't care who you are, uh, and and that's just the way it world. That's just the way it is in the real world. But this is the Star Trek world, and they're trying to tell a story. So I'm I'm a lot less worried about things like that. I don't like. I say I get more frustrated. Let's say with the use of technology when they use it differently now than it was ever established. You know that you can transwarp across the galaxy or. You know, you go into hyperspace, you really don't even know how fast they're going and chronos to Earth in two minutes or whatever it is. Those types of things will drive me more crazy than a um, a mistake in the timeline. Okay, so let me ask you this. This is actually a really interesting question, and we're going to probably just go a little bit off topic here. But because you said that, Ken, and, and this is something that's also bothered me too with the movies, are we to appreciate and embrace that 2009 was a very just deep demarcation point from all of the canon that has come before and all the technology that you're talking about, transwarp beaming and the distance between Earth to Kronos and all of the things that pretty much drive fans crazy because it's been established in a previous timeline. The Raiders are like, this is our timeline. This is our time. This is our consistency. This is the way that we've laid it out. This stuff only matters moving forward. Is that fair to say to all the people that just don't know anything about this and don't care and are just there to watch a good story? And are they saying that in doing so, they completely disavow anything that the fans are coming with from 50 years of watching Star Trek? Because that, I mean, like when I sit there, I'm like, I get it. I understand why fans are mad. But at the same time, when I'm looking at somebody that's sitting next to me who has never seen Star Trek before, it doesn't matter. You know, all at the end is they know that they have a hero, the good guys won, the bad guys lost, and they want to see the next movie. Why is that less important in some sense than making sure that a tribal lizard dies based on Khan's blood? I mean, where where does the dividing line fall there? There are a lot of new fans that have come in from the new films that have never seen Star Trek before as well. And to them, none of this argument matters at all. Uh, they're they're like, well, I, I saw the movie. I enjoyed it. That's enough. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to, to try to please both them and also the older fans who are nitpicking. Uh, some people, you just can't please no matter what you do. So I, it's a very difficult line for them to, to, to toe on that. I think um, they did a yeah. I was just gonna say I think they did a pretty good job in 09 for the most time, staying relevant to the timelines. Done differently for yeah. 09. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty good. I thought they paid a lot of homage to the fans, mm-hmm. and Into Darkness, I just felt like they they just tossed it out the window. And that that's again, to Norm, to your point, that's okay. Uh, it it was very Star Wars, and you know, there's no technology or rhyme to reason in Star Wars. It just happens, right? You you go into hyperspace. In five minutes, you're across the galaxy, and it's supposed to be the speed of light. So, but nobody cares, and and I think that same approach is what kind of took over in these movies. You know, warp drive was warp drive; it was a cool effect, 
but there was really no science or pseudoscience that they put on it like they did in the other Star Treks. But I think that that's really the difference. I, I thought in 09 they really tried. And then, you know, all the homage in Into Darkness was to Khan and to that era. But they um, they really changed things up to to a ridiculous point, I thought. And for the, was it, it's, it's Bob Orsi, who was supposedly a very big Star Trek fan, who co-wrote that, you know, he, he probably could have reined a few things in just to make it a little bit more, I guess, uh, appreciated by, by the longer term fans than, let's say, the newer ones who wouldn't get it anyway. Well, I guess the, the reason why I'm asking this is because let's go all the way back full circle to Trekopedia.com. When you see something like that, Jeff, because you've been so steeped in trying to find and make consistent like line and, and lineage and through lines through all this stuff, when you see the new movies, how do you adapt what you've seen into your system? Because you know that there is a certain point in time where everything changed. So does that become just either overwriting what you've written or just completely new entries or alternate timelines? Because we did talk about this at one mm-hmm. time that these may be, I mean, well, I guess it's debatable whether or not it is or is not an alternate timeline. But they say so in 09 where Spock says, you know, we may be actually existing now in a completely different temporal stream because we would never feel the effects of it. So how do you approach adding that into Trekopedia for people who have come into Star Trek from these movies and want to learn a little bit more about like, well, what happened in the Prime Spock timeline when we saw him talk to Kirk and tell him all about what happened with the Hobus explosion? Yeah, I address that uh, the characters from one timeline or another have completely separate entries. It's not like a different section on, on the same entry. So I have like, I have one page that just says Spock. And then I have another page that says Spock. And then in parentheses, it says ST11, which is my code for the, the timeline for the new movies. Cause it started the first time we saw it was in the 11th Star Trek movie. Um, and some of the details are different. So I have that for people, places, objects, Events, uh, uh, things like that are all their own page, their own entry. And there's a lot of uh, evidence, mostly from the comic books, to support the idea that this was a completely independent reality even before the uh, interference from Nero. Um, Some of the more recent issues actually have stuff from Prime Spock's perspective where he's talking about how things look different, but the general feel of the place is the same. You're talking about the IDW mm-hmm. comics, like yes. the Prelude or the um, the, ongoing, the precursors, yeah, yeah to and the ongoing movie, yeah. series as well. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there those are actually being a little bit more consistent within this movie universe as opposed to trying to fit or retcon whatever content is in these comic books into the original Prime timeline? It kind of does both. It, uh, it It's taken the events of some of the episodes from the original series and it's rewritten them to fit within this new timeline. So like the very first storyline in the ongoing series was a retelling of where no man has gone before with Gary Mitchell and all of that. And it ended on a completely different note than the original did. Um, it had the look and the feel of the technology and the uniforms and everything from the new films, but the same basic premise as the original episode. Uh, Gary Mitchell was drawn to look exactly like Gary Lockwood, who played him on the original mm-hmm. show. And, yeah, they did a great job with that. And yeah. 
they uh, made some other changes. Like um, Sally, uh, Sally Carolman's character, uh, she... Dr. Danner. Dr. Danner. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. She was not in this story because apparently she had some history with Dr. McCoy and refused to come on the mission. And that totally okay. changed some of the other events later in the story. It, it was uh, just furthering that the, there are some things that are the same in this timeline and there are some things that are different. And as we progress forward, things are getting more and more and more different. So in, in, in some total with Trekopedia.com, has there ever been an instance where you're trying to catalog something and you just said, this just absolutely makes no sense in the history of Star Trek ever? Or you're really good at this, Jeff, because you, know, you have a background in history, right? That was your major. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because of that, you find a certain way and a certain avenue of being able to soft, softly fit in or massage certain things. But has there ever been a time where, as a Star Trek fan, where something has popped up either on screen or you're reading it in a book or reading a comic where you just said, you know, the writers were just off. How am I going to display this thing away? Where am I even going to catalog something like this? Has there ever been a time where you're just like, it, it just kind of almost made you snap in a way? It's like, no. I don't even want to enter this into my encyclopedia. Um, I can't think of anything like that. Um, mostly because we've got the, uh, um, the established fact that there are multiple timelines, multiple realities. So if something doesn't fit factually with anything else, I can say that, well, this was in another reality that was similar, but not identical to everything else that's on the site. Um, but for the most part, I'm able to fit just about everything into the main timeline. Some things take a little bit more finessing, uh, especially with some of the, uh, the FASA timeline. Uh, there's things from that set during the time of enterprise that it's very difficult to fit in because they show it as being much more militaristic than it was on enterprise. But a lot of that I'm actually able to fit in because it's right around the same time as the Zindi crisis. And that time Starfleet would be more militarized. And so it would fit with mm-hmm. that. And it talks about like the the first contact with the Tellarites, you know, the the official first contact with the Tellarites, because Archer had, had run into one earlier, but humanity in bounty, yeah, in bounty, yeah. but humanity as a whole really hadn't run into the Tellarites. And there's this story that when you factor in the shift for the the time on the calendar from the star, uh, the the chronology that they used as opposed to the chronology from the Akuta timeline. And you work that in, then it actually lines up to be just two months into the Zindi crisis, while Enterprise is off in the, the Delphix expanse, and you have this Tellarite ship comes out of warp into the solar system and says that they are annexing them as part of you know their their uh, um, their government, and another Starfleet ship comes up and says uh, no, um, basically something very belligerent in return. The Tellarites get a good laugh and are suddenly best friends with humanity. Mm, and Tellarites love a good debate. And then that ties right into the next season. All of a sudden, we're really close with the Tellarites, mm-hmm. just out of nowhere. Right. So something perfect happened. first contact situation. Yeah, right? and something happened <laughs> during season three while Enterprise was off in the expanse, where suddenly Earth and the Tellarites are very close, and it never said what. But if you factor in that event from. Um, from the FASA chronology and put it in during that time period where it would fit when you adjust the date, it works perfectly. 
I'd have to think that somewhere along the lines, if you take a look at like the mathematical probability of all this working together, you're probably looking at somewhere around what, 90 to 92 percent overall. Yeah, uh, it's pretty close. It's very uh, consistent, shockingly. Um, I've had very few things where I've really had to either just ignore them outright and put them off into uh, into in some kind of a parallel timeline or, you know, some things where I've had to just ignore bits and pieces and kind of try to work the rest of it around. But uh, the ones that are actually kind of the hardest to fit in is from the old gold key comic books, because visually and tonally and everything, they are very different from everything else. But then there's a recent uh, um, photo comic from uh, John Byrne that just came out not too long ago. And that actually implies that those comics were an alternate reality. You can always explain everything away with an alternate oh, reality. It's very I love it. It's, you know, that's I, a great side. I was trying to work them in uh, very hard uh, to try to find a way to work them into the to the main timeline. It was just very difficult for me to do it. And then that comic came out, and I was like, "Well, that makes it so much easier." There you go. It's kind of like your Rosetta Stone for all things uh, in Trekopedia.com. So before we wrap up the show. Ken, is there anything else that you'd like to ask Jeff about his processes or just in terms of how he approaches Trekopedia? I guess the, 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 the key question for me, Jeff, is when you're, when you're pulling all this data and, and you're working to align it, are there references beyond, let's say, published media that's out there? Do you send emails? Do you check in with writers? Are there, are there people that you know or that you reach out to that are also kind of experts in this field that that allow you to kind of pull it all in? Or is this all just a, a one-person show? Uh, this is all just me. Um, I just go with what's been on screen or on the page. And I just do my best to try to find a way to work it all together. Um, I have actually have a system for determining the priority if there's a conflict of something. My top priority goes to what's been on TV or in the movies uh, the next priority goes to the novels. Uh, following that is the comics, and then uh, uh, the last priority it would be with the uh, the games, uh, with video games getting a higher priority than uh, the uh, RPGs. You know, actually, that's oh gosh, I can't believe we didn't even talk about this because it wasn't in the notes. But you have to be consistently scanning what's happening with STO mm-hmm. and Star Trek Online. Yeah. How strong are they in terms of fitting into all of this, uh, the canonical tapestry of of their game, <laughs> plus what's happened before? Uh, they made it easy. They've established that they are a separate timeline from everything else. So whatever happens in their game is completely independent of everything. That's pretty smart. That's that's a good way of sidestepping all of this stuff. So you they're know, you have they're to- able to uh, they're able to work in things from the novels, but then tweak it so it fits what they want to do. Yeah, I remember like one of the first missions I did was it was almost kind of like a, a a retelling of the Doomsday Machine mission where we went down to the Guardian of Forever and then we would actually have to pilot the Enterprise and and the Constellation and see if we could tag team the Doomsday Machine, but in a completely different storytelling setting because it wasn't about Kirk and Decker. It was like it was whatever my character was and the story at the time. So that was a lot of fun. So but it is, you're right. You, you have to be able to do that so you don't completely just add on and heap piles of inconsistencies onto the current timeline or the prime timeline or the non-prime timeline or however you want to do it. I just – one last question for me is when, do, when you're watching something as it's happening and say this is going to happen with you in 2017, because you've done this so habitually and this is kind of like an athlete, an athlete 
they, they exercise without exercising. You know, they do things and they, they keep their form and they keep everything tight and their core tight. Does your brain do that when you're watching a show? Does it, does half of it watch it for enjoyment? The other half watch it for content and to put inside this encyclopedia of yours? Yeah. Um, I'll be watching something and every so often, like my brain will go off and like, Oh wait, that doesn't work or, Oh, that <laughs> explains this. And it, it's just kind of always going on in the back of my head. So that, I mean, you're never, you're never really, your brain's never really turned off on this. You're always actively trying to absorb in a way, board like information uh, instead of, I mean, let me put it this way. Are you ever just watching it to enjoy it? I try to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair answer. I mean, Ken, you know, you know, when you watch news, when you watch 2017, it's going to be like, is it mostly like, wow, for you? Are you, are you also looking for those? Is, does this fit? Does this not fit? How are they doing this? Yeah, I've really changed my view on that as, as I've gotten older, as I kind of indicated. So I was watching the commentary that Nicholas Meyer did for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you know, the movie that um, followed the motion picture and helped relaunch the uh, the series that, that the motion picture got going. You might be familiar with it. Anyway, in that commentary, Nicholas Meyer uh, talked about the um, the changes that were made, uh, the artistic approach, the storytelling element of it, and hit on some of the inconsistencies. So he was not really all that interested in Star Trek lineage. Uh, he he made it in his own image, being like the Navy and being a little bit more military and cowboy diplomacy and, and all those things. And one of the things that he said that was interesting, he said, this is not new, that uh, if you read Sherlock Holmes or any of the other serial books from the past or other, other serial movies that come out, they were wildly inconsistent and that their focus was really on telling a good story. You know, that he talked about um, uh, Sherlock having, having a war injury and in one book it's his arm and in another book it's his leg. Even their own authors didn't care that much because they just wanted to tell a good story. Having heard that documentary... Uh, made me think of things differently. And I think it was helpful because it allows you to enjoy things a little bit more. Now, don't get me wrong. I still like when things are, I'm a very logical, linear person. That's why when you guys start talking about alternate realities, whether it's Star Trek or DC Comics or whatever, my mind goes, no, it's just another lens from a different era telling a different story. Even when the, even when the creators themselves say, oh, no, it's a completely different universe or another timeline, my brain does not allow me to go there. So I do try to squeeze it all into the Star Trek that I know and love versus trying to uh, say, okay, this is just a separate timeline. Like I said, with the... With the new movies, with the Abrams movies, I understand the timeline's different because it was changed, but it's like everything has reset itself all over again. And that's fine with me. It doesn't bother me. It, you know, I'm kind of curious to see what the prime timeline would look like now that it's been altered versus, oh, this is one timeline and this is prime timeline. I can't play in that. So I still have my hangups. I still have my focuses, but I can, I can enjoy the movies now a little bit better uh, without worrying about timelines as much as, like I said before, some of the, some of the leaps they make in technology, which doesn't really play well, but I can enjoy it more. Well, I think one of the things that's universally similar about all Star Trek fans is that Star Trek actively engages our intellects. I think that's always been one of Star Trek's greatest trademarks because 
I think it's more of a thinking man show or a thinking woman show than any other series that I've watched in science fiction. And that's the tradition that it started all the way back with the original series. So it kind of set itself up to be this fandom, this genre that fans have been attracted to because by and large, it's so detail oriented that when you take that out, when you actually take the trees from the forest, the fans kind of scratch their heads and like, no, 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 no. That's not the sandbox that we're used to. Mm-hmm. You need to keep this consistent. And even the inconsistencies are somewhat consistent because at least it's in the same pool. The writers are drawing from the same well. And I think it's great that Jeff has been able to go there and provide a lot of the listeners and fans this resource because that's where you take your name from. And I'm going to let you kind of let us close out the show with the sentiments for Mr. Ataz. The reason why we chose your name is because. Well, like Mr. Ataz on the uh, uh, on the series, he was a librarian. He knew everything from A to Z. That's right. And I try. It's something that you find personally satisfying to you. It's something that speaks to your core. And as a Star Trek fan, this is this is no small Mm -mm. endeavor, folks. And I just want to kind of make a point of that. We all have our fandoms and we all approach our fandoms in different ways. But the reason why we wanted to do the show and the reason why Ken and I have talked about interviewing our own co-host like this is because... This isn't just a labor of love. This isn't actually a legitimate resource for fans to go to to learn more about Star Trek. And not even just the original series, about all of Star Trek, because Jeff has pretty much digested it all. That's the, that's the trademark of a true fan, a super fan. I'm not saying that anyone out there isn't a true fan, but when you put the level of time and work and personal investment into this, you have reached a certain level of personal fandom that I think... Some of us would like to achieve, but we're glad that somebody else has achieved it. And Jeff, please let us know a little bit more about how you've tried to continue this and where do you want to go with this uh, in terms of 2017 and beyond? Well, uh, this needs a lot more work done on it. Uh, It is nowhere near complete and I'm putting in some work whenever I can. uh, Oh, you're fired. You're so fired. Cut (laughs) the show. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 I've been putting in what I can, when I can, and, uh, uh, it's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. And I've been, like you said, I, I have a degree in history and I've been using that to write this as if it was written in universe as an historical piece. Um, I've got, you know, sections on, you know, all the different episodes so far. The only ones that I've finished are the first season of the original series, um, but they'll have like a, a short little summary of the episode with links to the different characters and different things that are in that episode. Um, then I've got like a sortable list of every starship ever named or every Federation starship ever named uh, on the show, in the books, in the comics, in the, you know, the games. And that's about as complete as I can make it. Uh, it's current within the last couple of years. Um, there's still a few books that I have to go through that I haven't gotten into it yet, but, uh, um, it's, it's pretty complete. It's several thousand ships long. Um, and not all of those links are, you know, have information on them, but a lot of them do. 
Um, so as I get time, I go in and I update those as much as I can. Um, I've got a very thorough um, uh, entry for the Constitution class, listing both the original and the refit configurations, all the different information taken from every source that I can find. Um, I just recently got that uh, that new uh, um, owner's manual for the USS Enterprise, and I'm going to be adding some information from that into it as well. Um, and just as things come up from the new show, I'll be trying to add those in as well. I add stuff in from Star Trek Online. I've got stuff in there from uh, all the, the, the new films, from the different comic books and the books and everything. And I, I just try to get it all in as, as much as I can. And I use my training as a history student to have, you know, very well-documented uh, references. So as you're reading, it'll have like a little uh, footnote indicator for the footnotes where I've got, you know, a reference. Like it, I took, got this information from this episode, from this book. Uh, I have notes where it'll say note one or note two. And I'll have a note at the bottom saying, you know, this was originally said this, but because it conflicts with this other one, it was changed for this reason. Um, so like sometimes a lot of these different references will have wildly conflicting uh, information on the names and whole numbers of ships. So I try to find the best uh, resolution of that conflict. So like sometimes it'll have like two or three different registry numbers for the same ship. And so I'll pick the one that has, you know, from my um, hierarchy, whichever one is the the one used on the show, I'll go with that. If, uh, you know, it wasn't used on the show, but it was used in one of the books, I'll go with that, et cetera, down the line. And so then I'll have a note noting all of that conflict and why I went with what I went with. Um, another one is the Enterprise A. A lot of sources say that it had a different name and was recommissioned as the Enterprise A, and then there are like three different ship names that uh, were listed, and ultimately I went with the Yorktown, and then I explained why. Okay. You know, it's, that's, that's, I mean, there's so much dense information, and for those of you who have not yet visited trackopedia.com, please do so, because... Again, it's just one of those great resources where you can spend a lot of time in there. A lot of time has been put into there. And we feel fortunate here at Trek FM that we actually have this type of resource at our disposal and the person who is responsible for that. So um, I just wanted to thank you, Jeff, for putting in that much fandom into something like this because I've even used it many times where I'm trying to make sense of certain things. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? And it's neat to be able to do that as a fan. And it's be able to have a fan do that instead of me. So <laughs> because I just don't, I don't have it in me. There's a lot so, of um, truth in that. It's funny, Jeff, because yeah. when you mentioned that when uh, I was on the, the, the patrons round table a year ago, June, it's almost been a year. That's when I met you guys. That's when it was brought up for the first time. I didn't know it was there. And it has been a lot of fun. I love the, uh, the, the Starship name piece. Uh, it's, it's pretty, um, it's it's pretty easy to navigate around. There's just so much details in there. I mean, you you can tell you've spent years and years and years on this. It's it's an incredible amount of effort, and uh, you know I, I salute anyone, but I do salute you for for putting that kind of work into it. I hope uh, that you're considering sending this to Nicholas Meyer and the rest of the team that's working on 2017, so you can get some credit and have them 
you know, take a look and, and be able to follow timelines a little bit better. I'm, I'm sure the Akutas are probably already knocking at the door, but <laughs> it would sure make life easy. And it would probably help them with a lot of their ideas and ship names and so forth if they want to redo things. So hopefully that this will, um, this labor of love will, will have a, have a great impact. I know it does on a lot of the people that are in the community today, but, uh, boy, it would really be nice if that could be highlighted and spotlighted in, in future, uh, actual Star Trek works. Yeah. And another, uh, another one that I'm working on right now is a complete listing chronologically of all the stories. And I'm up to the first season of the original series on that one right now. But it's got pretty much everything starting from the Big Bang up, down, you know, up throughout history, and even like separated by some of the books have chapters that take place in different time periods. Those are split up in that as well. So, do we know what happens to the Commodore? Does he have great adventures coming up, or what? Wait, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to step into my own timeline, <laughs> you know, or or else I have to find a, a Type Forty Four. And with a working chameleon circuit and unspool all that. But that's another show. That's a completely other show. Um, thank you, Jeff, for doing all of that. And uh, we, we truly appreciate your work. And again, folks, if you haven't been there, trekopedia.com. That is the source for a lot of Trek knowledge. And we have acudograms. We have the Drex files. And hopefully, you know, later on, we will have the, uh, what do you like to call them? Harlanograms, Harlan files, something along that line. Harlan files sounds like an old seventies TV show. Like that, you know, <laughs> like, Col- <laughs> like Colcheck the Night Stalker, right? So, thanks, Jeff, and uh, thanks, Ken. That was a great show, and it's been an incredible time talking about Trekopedia.com and all of the work that Mister Ataz, our Mister Ataz on Trek FM, has been doing for all of our listeners here. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look as some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Women at Warp. The only way that she can get through the trauma is remembering what her real story is, and that's getting this puppy home and taking care of it. I wish that Captain Jamie Nelson said, let's get this puppy home. <laughs> Melodic Treks. Do you know what lesson I got from this? What? Don't rely on technology to solve all of your problems. What does that mean? It means don't play on your iPad all the time. That's what my teacher told me. Your teacher's very smart. Saturday Morning Trek. Dorothy had a little bit of a fit with the uh, animators. They had said over and over again, there is no moon in the Vulcan sky. I think it was like the first episode that aired of the original series when they mentioned this. Because Uhura walks up to Spock and she's like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me that I would look good in your moon. And he's like, Vulcan has no moon. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Continuing mission. So why don't you give me a little bit of a thumbnail of what Starship Grissom is? First, it's a uh, Star Trek fan film. It's written by teachers and designed so teachers and educators can download it and use it in their classrooms. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Mr. Ataz, when you're not embroiled in all the different ways of ironing out inconsistencies throughout all of the different series of Star Trek and the books and the comics. How can all of our listeners find all the different ways to find Trek FM across the interwebs? 
Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. You know, we're coming up on probably one of my favorite segments to talk about. And even if it's at the end of the show, we are coming up on our Patreon.com segment. And one of the things that I wanted to actually bring up on the Babel conference recently, we have had a really nice posting by Christopher Jones our supreme executive producer commander for Trek FM. And he actually listed out that we have five or six new people that have joined the Patreon ranks. And I just wanted to thank all of you, even if you're not maybe listening to the show right now, if you get a chance to listen to Standard Orbit later on, thank you so much for coming on to our program and supporting our network through patreon.com because there's a lot that you have signed on board for the roundtable sessions or becoming associate producers. So Ken, did you read that today? Did you read that? It's a really nice. Oh, um, several names are coming across the board. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, yeah. it's wonderful because this is what it's all about, folks. It's all about being part of this network and and having a vested interest in it. And Patreon is the is the system that that we employ here on on Trek FM to to deliver that. And and that's what's wonderful is. You know, we are a listener-based, listener-supported network, and it's a big network, and it's growing, and it's exciting. New shows left and right, but there's nothing more exciting than having new fans and new listeners come aboard and willing to to share in that, right? And And so we don't ask you to donate any particular amount. Anything you can afford is is appreciated. And we do know everybody's circumstances are different. But Patreon, which is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM, that is how you will find us, right? This is where you can donate money. You can switch your donation amounts from month to month. You're not locked into anything. If you donate $15 a month, then you're eligible for a nice seat on the patrons roundtable and you get your crack at podcasting. If you get up to $25 a month, then you get associate producer credits. And if you donate anything, then you have access to all kinds of nice little perks that that Chris Jones and Aaron Harvey have put on on the network for you to share. So there's really no way to lose. But for us, it really helps us maintain our programming and allows you to bring interruption-free podcasting to your ears. So we appreciate and thank you so much for contributing. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, everybody that you hear on these shows, we're all contributors ourselves. So we all practice what we preach. We're not asking you for to, for you to do anything um, more or less than what we do as well. So, so thank you for your time and thank you for your contribution. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We can't thank you guys enough. And especially our associate producers for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge, who have been supporting us for quite a while now, and we truly appreciate what you've done for the show as our associate producers. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972. You can also find different ways to support your fandom by wearing your fandom. So if you go to redbubble.com and type Trek FM into the search field, you'll be able to find all different types of wearable fandom designed by our own Aaron Harvey, our art director here at Trek FM. And they are fantastic. Con season is coming up. 
So it's possible you might want to find a new shirt or an iPhone cover or a coffee mug for all the coffee that you'll be drinking to stay up in those lines during the convention or just a really nice conversation piece like the inspirational ninja cat from previous episodes on Standard Orbit discussed by the previous hosts, Mike, Drew, and Andy. So please visit redbubble.com and search Trek FM in the search field for all of that wearable apparel support. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here on the network, you can find us at trek.fm slash contact. You can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and the Babel Conference. Type B-A-B-E-L in the search field and you will be transported magically to the best forum of Star Trek conversation that you've ever visited in your entire life. And I say that completely seriously because we love the Babel Conference. It's the Trek FM listeners fan page where we, the hosts and other hosts on different shows, engage you, all of the fans, in just really incredible, deep, positive, and very respectful conversation. So please check out the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, and type that into your search field. Now, Ken, if all of our listeners would like to get in touch with you, and let's make a point of this because we have pretty much proven how much Mr. Atos has invested into Star Trek. So our listeners get in touch with you and you run something a little bit special here for Standard Orbit that I think some of our listeners have let lapse. And as the chief, I know you don't like letting things lapse. So how can they get in touch with you? Well, funny you should mention that because I do have a stump Mr. Atos question this week. You do? I do. Oh. I do. And yeah, so first of all, if you want to reach out to me, the Babel Conference is the best way. Feel free to IM me through the Babel Conference or friend me on Facebook. Uh, that That's the best way. And uh, I am always on there. Uh, sometimes at work, I'm trying to uh, get through some things, but I'll, I'll always go in and take a look when I can. But uh, I, I love communicating through that. But yes, if you IM me and you have a question for Mr. Atos and he is unable to answer it, then I will purchase the red bubble shirt of your choice and send it to you, which has already happened. Uh, Ian, uh, my my buddy in Ireland, there he's he he finally got his shirt after a, a little uh, struggles to do an overseas shipment, but we got it and he posted it. So it was it took a while, but he has it and life is good. So, Mister Atos, we've been we've been giving you a lot of questions today. Are you ready, sir? I believe so. Okay, here we go. The episode, by any other name, makes reference to two previous TOS episodes in dialogues in dialogue during the episode. What are the episode names, and what are the references? He's thinking, folks. He is. He could, he, I didn't think it, but he's actually turning redder than he already is. That's incredible. I'm trying to run the dialogue of this episode through my head. And, uh, well, we don't have 58 minutes, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> This is a really tough question, yeah, but it's right. It's right where we want, you know, yeah. that's a, oh man, that's a good one. Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to have to cut it. And okay. I, I, I can't recall. Okay. So the answer is the energy barrier from where no man has gone before and Spock's mind melding to convince the guards they have oh, escaped yeah. from a taste in Armageddon. So, the person who sent this question is is actually a member of the network. It's Brandon Shamotawa. And uh no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's and he said uh I, I you know, salute him. Yeah, that, he, that he was did an well. Excellent question. 
Yes, it was an excellent question. And I thought for sure you'd you'd be able to pick up on this one because when I read it, I instantly said, uh, I hope Jeff figures this one out because I'd never be able to answer this question, but it was very well done. So anyway, for anyone out there, like I said, um, we've got them twice now, folks. So um, I don't know, Jeff, you're starting to cost me money, brother. So um, (laughs) dude. You know, get get on to trekopedia.com. I highly recommend it and, and start start studying for the next series of questions that come our way. Yeah, I heard the guy that programs that's pretty good at Star Trek. Yeah. So uh yeah, study, yeah. study hard. There's tabs, there's everything. If you haven't seen the website, it's it's wonderful. So that was our stunt, Mr. Atos. That was good. Good good on you, Brendan Shamatala. And those questions only go to Ken. But if you'd like to get in touch with Jeff, Jeff, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavacron or even a talking stone Taurus, uh, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm the co-host on the network for both Standard Orbit and Warp 5, uh, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm also on Twitter, at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. You can also check out my site. It's been called the Grand Theory, Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com and my independent comics at bandwidthcomics.com or search on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. Now, I see that you wrote here, Jeff, that it's Trekipedia yes. with an I, not an E, right? That's correct. Trekipedia. That is correct. Okay, trekipedia.com. Okay. Like Wikipedia, so people but can... with Trek at the beginning. That's so fancy. That's so fancy. I don't see why I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I'm shocked that so nobody thanks, else registered it before I did. <laughs> If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. You can also find me at, on Twitter at Starfighter1701, and you can find me, and you can always contact me as one of the executive producers here on Trek FM. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs> <laughs>